think they've uh, designated my time to be here with you the hottest days in Los Alamitos. It, um, it's a joy and a pleasure to be with you here. I have one announcement before we begin the, the sermon. Um, together with Lance and Han and also uh, with James and Dan uh, and Bob, we've decided to streamline some of the ministries and some of the teaching time. We've looked at the equipping hour and many of you have been involved in premarital and uh, fundamentals of the faith. And premarital is going to continue, but we've asked with the folks at Fundamentals of the Faith and with the other aspect of the equipping hour whether we could roll out one teaching session for the next two months that would focus on a philosophy of biblical leadership. Uh, and the purpose of this series is to open it up to the whole church for everybody to be part of the process, one of the mandates that Grace Church Advance was given was to provide shepherding and direction on leadership for the church. And we want to do that, and we would like everybody to be, in, to be involved. The series is called The Servant Shepherd or The Shepherd Servant, uh, God's Philosophy of Leadership for the Church. It is going to be taken from 1 Timothy. The focus is for us not to just look at 1 Timothy 3, but to look at all of 1 Timothy and to walk through together. It will be a time where we will read scripture together as a family. We will pray together as a family for this church and for the leadership. And it will, be, uh, it will have a significant time that will be designated for discussion and for question and answer. I will be shepherding that time and Lord willing, we will see how that goes. But part of this as well is for the elder vetting process. The hope is that as we find out next week, Lord willing, who the men are whose names will stand, who you voted for, and who are going to begin the elder vetting process, that they will become part of this process and this equipping hour, that they will be shepherded during that time, but they will also serve and they will also participate. And they will also have an opportunity to teach and share portions of their lives and their teaching and their hearts on the gospel. And you will have an opportunity during that time, during Q&A, to interact with them. So those who expressed concerns before about saying that there are nominations of people who we don't know, they're not our care group leaders, but they were voted by other people, this is going to be an opportunity for you to come face to face and interact and have time together with them. And our purpose in this time is that we can come together as one family and exalt Christ in the word and in prayer and to see his mandate and his blueprint of how he would like Cornerstone Bible Church to proceed, to lead, and to glorify him. And so I hope starting next week at 9 o'clock, those of you who are able will come at 9 o'clock and we can be together then as a family. With that being said, um, our lesson today is Lesson 5, The Gift of Forgiveness. And goodness knows I need this as much as anyone this morning. Our text is taken from Matthew 18, 21 through 35. And as you know, what we've been doing is we've been walking down the steps of Peter through the Gospel of Matthew. And we've been seeing through Peter's eyes his discipleship and his mentorship from Christ. And what we've been looking at each step of the way is we've been looking at all the gifts that God has been putting into his life. And I hope one of the things that you're starting to see as we roll through each of these gifts that the Lord is giving Peter is that what God is doing for Peter in the life of Christ is he's taking everything that Peter was and he's tossing it out. And slowly, methodically, he is putting his heart and his life and his love 
into Peter, and he's doing it for a purpose. He's doing it out of love for Peter, but he's also doing it so that Peter ultimately can become like him. And he is ultimately preparing Peter to be the lead disciple and the lead apostle who will help found the church and lay the foundation alongside Christ, the cornerstone, for a church which exists here today and which you are a part of. So as you look at each one of those gifts, I want you to take into consideration now as we look forward for the next two to three months and key in as the focus of the church is what is God's plan and what is his vision for leadership? Not what Mark Chins, not what Grace Church Advance, not what any man, but what is Christ's vision for leadership? I think as you look at each of these different gifts, you can start to see the building blocks of God's building blocks of what he builds his church on. And what he builds his church on and what he builds leaders on are men who have the gift of his infinite love in Christ and have an intimate and personal relationship with Christ. They are men who have received the gift of God's word and the light of his word in their life. And you can see that in their life. And they are men who have received the gift of obedience by faith, that they have a track record and a path that they're not perfect men, that they make mistakes, that not all things are correct, but when they are given the word of God, they hear it and they obey simply and immediately. And then they are men who have progressed in their knowledge of Christ, not a knowledge that comes necessarily from textbook knowledge, though that can assist, but that it's a real and true and living vision of Christ. And as you interact with them and see their lives and see their marriages and see their homes, are they perfect men? No. But can you say, I have been with someone who I know has a knowledge of Christ that comes from faith that is different from the rest of the world. And then last week we talked about the gift where the knowledge of Christ brings us, which is the gift of the cross. The gift of realizing that if we're going to serve and we're going to follow Christ, it is going to come with blows, it's going to come with difficulties, and it's going to come with hardships. Some of them are intentional, some of them are unintentional. Some of them are from our own mistakes. Some of them are unwanted just because we're standing in a particular place or we're serving in a particular way or we're trying to do what's right because we're sinners and we fall short of the glory of God. But it is all part of the package that if we take away the cross, we have no salvation, we have no forgiveness. And that's an integral part of it. And today we're gonna look at the next gift in Peter's life which is imparted to him and it is the gift of forgiveness, the gift of forgiveness. And this is a critical one. And as we look at any man of God, any woman of God, any family of God, forgiveness is just a critical part of our relationship, not only with God, but with one another. When we look at the biblical text, we see that the currency of the church, what keeps unity? As I've talked to many people on the phone this past week, one of the things, one of the recurrent themes that comes up for Cornerstone Bible Church as far as the future ahead is a desire and a hope for a unity. But where does unity come from? And Martin Lloyd-Jones and R.C. Sproul and John MacArthur have all made the point that the only true foundation for unity is really in the truth and the truth of Christ and in the person of Christ. That all other unities are false. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, and I don't agree with all his theology, but he made a statement that there can be no relationship between two men unless Christ himself come in between. And what he's talking about there is that we are all sinners. 
we all fall short. Nobody's perfect. I'm certainly not perfect. In my best days, in my best moments, I will fall and I will offend you and I will grieve you. And the only way our relationship can survive in unity if forgiveness is there, but not a human forgiveness, but a forgiveness that comes from the Lord. Because when we look at the biblical definition of forgiveness, which is different from our contemporary way of looking at forgiveness, when we look at forgiveness in our marriages, in our friendships, more often than not forgiveness, what we're talking about is sort of overlooking, sucking something up, or ignoring something. You know, I may leave my dirty socks out all the time, and Julie may have to clean up after me repeatedly. And she'll say, yes, I forgive my husband for doing this. But then you get to the point where it's like the 150th time that Mark Chin has left his dirty socks on the sofa, that Julie says, you know what, enough's enough. That's the stop. Something must be done. This must be halted right here. And that sort of typifies human forgiveness so often. How many blows can we take until we reach the breaking point? How many times can we overlook? But when we look in Scripture, the definition of forgiveness is not about overlooking, it's not about mistakes, it's not, not about checking a list. It's about the restoration of a relationship through the removal of guilt. It's the restoration of a relationship through the removal of guilt from an offense that has happened between two parties. And when you define it that way, what you realize is none of us can fix that problem. Because the only one who can take away our guilt is Christ. And the Bible says without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. And that's why we can say that there can only be unity if there's forgiveness. And there can only be unity if Christ comes in between the two of us. Because you and I are not in a position to remedy that. Where does that definition come from? It comes from the character of God himself. That when we look at the Bible from Genesis to Revelation we see that God is not only a God of righteousness, but he's also a God of mercy. That it is within his character to be holy and not overlook sin and to call a spade a spade and say this is wrong and this is a grievance and this is a departure from my will and my word. But it's also within his character to say I love you. I created you. I have compassion for sinners and I want to find a way to reconcile and for us to be one. And you can see throughout the Bible from Genesis through Revelation that this tension continually exists between God's righteousness and God's mercy. And any parent who's had to discipline their child, and I was able to talk with Francis last week about our struggles in disciplining our children and my inability at times either to be overzealous or underzealous in that. You understand that there's that tension with your children. To what extent do I rightly rebuke this child for something that this child is doing wrong so that they don't persist and continue for their own benefit and they don't continue down this path which is destructive for them and yet at what point do I come in and do I have to say I need to give mercy and say look this is a child and as the Bible says God understands our frame and he knows that we are frail and he knows that we are but dust if you have your Bibles, turn with me and look at Exodus 34, 6 through 7. Exodus 34, 6 through 7. 
Moses has said to God that I cannot continue this journey into the promised land unless you go with me because this people and this community is too sinful and too divisive. And unless the Lord goes with me, I am not going to be able to carry this burden and this weight. And that's the same mandate and same challenge to every leader of this church and every man who's going to lead, this, lead his or her family. The burden of sin is too great. How are we going to move forward? And Moses says to God, I want you to show me your glory. And so God graciously does so. And this is what Exodus 34, 6 through 7 is about, where God says, I will show you my glory. And as you know, he puts Moses in the cleft of the rock and says, you can't see the fullness of my glory or you're going to be destroyed, but I'm going to put my hand over you. And as I go past, you will have or see the tailwind of my glory. And as that happens, we read in Exodus 34, 6, then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. God is both a righteous and holy God who calls sin for what it is, and forgiveness is not about giving a pass or not calling things for what they are. And yet we see at the same time that God is a gracious and compassionate and steadfast loving God who mourns and grieves over our sin and longs to have reconciliation. And so we see in the Old Testament the central role of sacrifice and blood offerings because the only way that those two aspects of God's personality or his attributes of his glory, what you're seeing there as he describes who he is and his personality, you are seeing the attributes of God's glory. What makes God infinitely great? And a component of that is his infinite mercy and a component of that is his infinite righteousness. And we see that those two come together where? at the cross, in Christ, where his righteousness comes with the full force of his wrath against Christ on that cross for all of your sins and mine, and yet his mercy and his grace comes for your sin and mine, that there has been a way forged forward where the veil has been torn so that you and I can have a relationship not only with him, but we can have a relationship with one another. Not because I can fix the problem, not because I can remove the guilt of my offense of where I fall short, but because Christ does and Christ has and he has done it in a permanent way. And furthermore, he can turn us into new creatures and new creations. And so you see from Genesis through Revelation that every great man of God was a man of forgiveness. We see that with Adam. We see that with Abraham, with his nephew Lot. We see that with Joseph, with his brothers where he's able to say at the end, what does Joseph say at the end after his brothers have sold him into slavery? What you meant for evil, God meant for good. And not coming back and not bringing vengeance and destroying them. We see this in the heart of David. And we see this obviously, most greatly in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who when he was hung on the cross said what? Lord, forgive them for they know not what they do. And yet we struggle with forgiveness, do we not? I know I certainly do. 
And we have a difficult time with that. And here's the tension. Unity within the body of Christ and unity among the people of God is built upon forgiveness. This week was a big Jewish holiday. Do you know what it was? It was high holiday. I got called into work because none of the Jewish doctors would work on Wednesday. This time of the year, if you go to most hospitals in a major metropolis, you will see all the Chinese and all the ethnic doctors working. Okay? It's Yom Kippur. Yom meaning day and Kippur is atonement. And it's the day that's celebrated one time a year when you go to Leviticus where animals are sacrificed and the high priest goes forward. And it's a day that people are to forgive one another of any grudges or any problems that they have between one another. And there is to be cleansing. Why? Because God has cleansed them. And it's the one day they come before the Lord with a blood sacrifice. And a scapegoat is also sent out in the community to take all the sins of the community. Why? Because life is for life and that's the only price that will take away guilt and that God has provided a way to bring a covering over his people so that they might have a relationship with him but they could also function as a community together a community without forgiveness a marriage without forgiveness a family without forgiveness a friendship without forgiveness is no friendship whatsoever forgiveness a restoration of a relationship through the removal of guilt of an offense given between two people is the currency of love that holds together any relationship in this world and it's what holds together a church and a church's unity moving forward and its leadership moving forward is going to live and it's going to die on whether you and I are going to be able to forgive one another for the offenses that we do why? Because you and I fall short in that way. That is the backdrop to our sermon today. Our sermon today takes us to Matthew 18, a very, very famous text. And the occasion of Matthew 18 is Jesus shepherding of the disciples and getting them prepared for the cross. And the occasion that comes up in Matthew 18 and we're going to focus on the latter half, on 20, 21, 22, 23, on the issue of forgiveness. But if you look at this whole section, this whole section is really about sin and forgiveness and how do we get along as a community. And the occasion comes up because the disciples are fighting among themselves. What's the question in Matthew 18:1 that comes up? Luke shows us that there was actually a dispute, but here we're told by Matthew that the disciples come to Jesus and they ask this fundamental question. What is it? Who's the greatest among us, right? Is that not the heart of our disputes? Whether it's at leadership as an elder board, whether it's two men trying to work together, whether it's a family and a husband and wife who are trying to decide who is gonna lead and who should follow, whether it's a decision on whether our children should be homeschooled or in the public school, whatever we deal with, at the heart of it so often is the issue of who is going to be greatest, who is going to have the last say, and where that's going to be. And when I spoke to Chris Hamilton last week, he said to me, Mark, I don't understand why it's so. Chris Hamilton's the head of the elder group at Grace. He said, but so often when we look at elders, everybody thinks that it's an issue of power and control, and who is going to be the greatest among us, and who is going to make the decisions for the church. Whereas when we look at the biblical paradigm, the biblical paradigm is who is going to serve humbly under Christ. 
and who is going to receive his word and deliver it. And as we go through this section, what you see in Matthew 18 is Jesus tells them as he sees their heart and he understands that they are, the problem here is that they are thinking like the world thinks. They know the cross is coming. They know, know that Jerusalem is coming. And they know that a time is going to come where they are going to have to take over leadership. And all these things are going through their mind and they're processing and they're trying to figure out what's the pecking order, what's the plan, what's the program, how are we going to roll this out, what are we going to do? Jesus says he's going to depart for a season. How are we going to get this figured out? And I'm sure they're stressed in many different ways. And so often, like so many of us, and me chief among you, as you're stressed and you're dealing with those things, the responsibility and the weight of what needs to happen and how you're going to do this and the issues of how am I going to control and what happens in A, B, and C, and D start acting differently. And you start to think the way the world does. And I am certainly guilty of this. And Julie can tell you that. And leaders who I've worked with can tell you that. And I fall short. And it's only the grace of God that holds me close. And you men will have to forgive me as I fall short in those ways. But Jesus sees this and sees these men. And he doesn't criticize them. He doesn't give them a hard time. He realizes that they are in a process as your leaders are in a process. And he graciously shepherds them. And what brings them to the place where they need to be are two things. And they're the only two things that are gonna to hold together any leadership group and the only things that are gonna hold you together and the only thing that provides forgiveness. It's the person of Christ himself and the shepherding of his word. It's the person of Christ himself and the shepherding of his word. That's the only thing that's gonna bring unity to any group of people and that's what exists here. No amount of reasoning, no amount of discussion, no amount of explaining this is why I did what I did or this is what I did. Those things are pointless. At the point that we reach an impasse, what we need is Christ, and what we need is the shepherding of his word. And that's what Christ brings. And as Christ goes through Matthew 18, what he explains to them, the overarching framework is this. Unless we see ourselves as children of God and begin to think in the ways of God, all of us, from top to bottom, chief among you, your leaders, we are all of all people without hope. Why is that? My grandmother used to say all the time, why can't you kids get along? Because we would fight all the time. Six to seven years of a seminary degree and, two TH and a THM, I can answer that question right now. Why can't we get along? It's two reasons as we go through the text. First one is that we're sinners. And even when we're saved, we have a propensity to think like we used to because that comes more comfortably. And we have a propensity to think in the ways of the world, of how the world should run, of how the world's pecking order should be. And the second aspect is we struggle, struggle to forgive one another. Do we not? We're sinners and we struggle to forgive one another. But the beauty of Christ and the beauty of his shepherding is that Christ provides us through himself, through his sacrifice on the cross, through his removal of our guilt, and also very specifically through his teaching. He provides us with a framework in which even though we hurt one another, and even though we sin, and even though we grieve one another, because that's who we are, even on our best days, Christ does not only provide us with the sacrifice, 
that we can have healing and be restored. He's provided us with a path and a way and a specific prescription of how we can pursue that reconciliation. And that's what comes up in this section section. So turn with me, if if you will, to Matthew 18, and we'll read the context of Jesus' lesson on forgiveness and how we can have forgiveness and at the same time, the dangers of not forgiving. Matthew 18, 21. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. And Jesus said to him, I don't say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, along with his wife and children and all that he had, and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. And then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. Please note this in in verse 35 because this is the point of the entire parable. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. We're going to consider first as we go in the ways of Peter because this whole second section is prompted by a question that Peter has for the Savior. And when we look at the wider context, part of the issue is Peter is struggling with his brothers, the disciples. They are probably driving him crazy. Many of you have said, as we've called you on the phone, how are the elders going to work together if we just have a group of names? How are these men going to heal? And if there should be any encouragement, you should consider the disciples. What a motley crew of men, how different they were. Take this for example. Peter was a fisherman in Capernaum and ran a family business. What did Matthew do? Matthew was a tax collector in the same town. And tax collectors ripped off all the small businessmen. They were at the roads, and any time you went through, they would take their tax and they would take extra and put it in their own pocket, and they would use that to finance their big lifestyle. In all likelihood, 
in all likelihood, Matthew may well have, there's a high likelihood in a small town like Capernaum, Matthew had extorted money from Peter. And yet these two men are called to be disciples and to call to function in unity to be the foundation of the church. Why? Because of who they were and what their past was? No, on the basis of who Christ was. But that doesn't mean that it was still not difficult for them to work together. And we see Peter is reaching, to a certain extent, a breaking point. You can imagine with a conversation about who's going to be the greatest, private discussions that are happening, and yet Jesus knows their heart, how difficult that is. And yet Peter shows encouraging signs because he comes to Jesus and he says, look, he's looking to Jesus for help. And he says, how often do I have to forgive? And he takes the paradigm of the time, according to the rabbis, if you look in your MacArthur Study Bible, that you're supposed to forgive someone three times and three times is the limit. And Peter's reaching and he's saying, okay, Jesus, I get that you're a gracious God. I get that the tradition of men is not sufficient. I get that limited forgiveness is not good enough. So how does seven times work out? I'll extend it more and I'll be a big person and I'll take that on my shoulders. But I'm getting to my breaking point. And yet when Jesus comes back, and he does so, as some would say, harshly and very astutely, he crashes Peter's whole paradigm. And he says, as you're familiar with, I say to you, I do not say to you. When you see that, when Jesus is saying is, I do not say to you, it's in parallel with the statements that he says, I say to you. And when he says that in Matthew, what he's referring to is, here are the traditions of men, which is the best that man can do in the wisdom of the world, and here's the word of God. And he's identifying the fact that Peter's statement is really as good as it's trying to be as trying to say, I'm going to do better than the world, is still molded in the world's framework. Because if you look at Peter's statement, what's the subject and what's the object of that statement? Who is it? It's Peter. When people have sinned against me, how often do I have to forgive them? Peter is both the object and subject. And Peter is seeing forgiveness so often as I do and as all of us do on strictly a horizontal plane. That forgiveness is between you and I, two people. And that forgiveness is about an offense, a personal offense or a personal grievance. And Peter's failing to see God in this picture. And so inevitably when it's seen on that level, when we see forgiveness as an offense between two people. Inevitably what we do when God is taken out of the picture, we either maximize or minimize. We either minimize our own offense and we refer to our sin as a mistake. I made a mistake, spoke out of turn, spoke too harshly. We don't call it what it is, that I said things in an unedifying way that was not pleasing to the Lord and it was a grievance to him. Or when people offend us, we maximize it, do we not? And we say, this is an offense, okay? They've grieved me. It's a debt. Something's been done. And so we either maximize or minimize because it's all being kept on a horizontal plane. And when we keep things on a horizontal plane and it becomes all about us, what ends up happening is our idea and understanding of both forgiveness and sin are both completely distorted because as Jesus will show Peter, both of those are based on the character of God. And unless we understand God, 
our attempts at forgiveness are doomed to fail. And then what ends up happening is what Peter, the predicament Peter's in. It's an issue of just sucking it up because our shoulders are not big enough to receive the sin of other people. I'm not the Savior, you're not the Savior. I don't care who you are, there's no one who can bear the sin of another person. We can't do it. Christ alone can do it. And so what ends up happening when we see it on a horizontal level is we start keeping track. I've forgiven this person three times. I've considered, I, I've, I've sucked it up four times. This is the fifth time they've insulted me and they've done the same thing. I'll overlook it. I'm a good guy. I can handle it better than the rest. And then we get to the seventh or eighth time and we reach a breaking point. And that sack or backpack filled with all those hurts that have existed over days or years or moments finally bursts. And all of a sudden it comes out and there's too much to say and too much to speak. And then it seems that it's beyond repair at that point in time. That's a forgiveness that comes from men. And that's what Jesus is hitting on when he says, Peter, I'm saying to you not seven times, but 70 times seven. And what he's coming and he's saying, he's blowing up the whole system, which is what Christ does. He takes on the systems of men and he explodes them and he crashes them because he says, if you're gonna hang on, Peter, to any aspect of this rabbinical teaching, if you're gonna hang on to any aspect of the wisdom of the world and try and parlay that into something that we're gonna use in the kingdom, you're gonna fall flat in your face because the forgiveness of God is limitless. The forgiveness of God is limitless. And the forgiveness of God's people is limitless and without count. That neither God or his people, where the Spirit of God is, are sitting there with a checklist and keeping track and keeping count. Why? We'll see later because Christ has paid it all and has dealt with that account and his forgiveness for our sins is infinite. Praise God, Jesus realizes that his disciples are struggling with this concept and they're a little bit thick and they're a little bit dense, even as we are. And so he uses a parable to illustrate his point to Peter. And that's where the parable of what's called the unforgiving servant, but I believe it should really be called the parable of the forgiving king, begins. And what he does when he comes in, he says, for this reason, and he begins the parable, and what he begins to illustrate to Peter is, okay, Peter, looking at forgiveness on a horizontal level, that's the ways of Peter and that's the ways of the world. Let me now show you the ways of the king and the ways of the kingdom. And as he enters this and starts with the ways of the king and begins the parable, his focus is on the king and the king's relationship with the servant. And what do we see in 18, 22, 23? He says, for this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Jesus identifies both God and himself as a king. And he identifies the members of his kingdom, which includes the disciples and you and I, as slaves. And the nature of that relationship is that the king is sovereign, and when we look at kings of that time and that age, the entire life of the slave was dependent on the rule of the king. Everything that they did, everything that they said, their children, their families, 
was all subject to the rule of the king and was all believed to be part of the ownership of, of that king. The slave had only one identity, the king. And the slave had only one purpose, to glorify the king. And all the resources of the slave were considered the king's. And the purpose of that slave was to take the wealth and glory of that king and to invest it and use it for his glory. And so you had slaves at different levels and different standards. Some who were governors or high up in the king's uh, framework or organization were also considered slaves. And we see through this that Jesus identifies God as a sovereign king who is in complete control. He identifies that the entire life of the slave is dependent on the king. But he also identifies the king as someone who keeps track of his people. That he is not a negligent king who overlooks disputes, who overlooks accounts. And so often when we struggle with forgiveness, the sentiment or the heart or the feeling is God doesn't understand. God is not seeing. Does he realize I put up with this offense 10 or 12 times? Where's God in all of these things? And Jesus is illustrating that God in his time and his way is sovereign over all of those things and he's keeping track and he is keeping accounts. And there comes a time where the Lord comes and pulls the books and says, I'm going to settle the accounts. God does not overlook sin and forgiveness is not about overlooking sin and minimizing it and saying it doesn't exist. In fact, what Jesus points out, forgiveness begins with seeing our sins the way God himself sees it, to open up his ledger book, the Bible, and to see the way he identifies it and to realize the way he identifies that debt is the nature of our sin. Jesus then points out to us through this simple verse how God views the nature of sin. Sin is not viewed as a mistake. Sin is not viewed as an error on a test or a mishap or something that happened last night because I was up all night and I was late and I didn't get a whole lot of sleep and I spoke a harsh word this morning. Sin is identified here as a debt. A debt, a debt that is owed to who? God himself. It is the product of a life this slave did not enter into this position of being in debt to the king overnight. We are told that his debt was of an infinite amount, right? It says 10,000 talents. But when we look at the Greek word for 10,000, it's actually the word myria, from which we get the word myriad. It is the largest known number in the Greek language. And so what Jesus is not necessarily saying 10,000, it's like he's saying gazillion saying the biggest number that you can possibly imagine, this servant owed. And we see that that did not happen overnight, but it was the product of a repeated behavioral pattern on behalf of this slave that ran contrary to the will and word of his king that ended up burying him over a period of time so that he was infinitely in debt to his king, to the point where he became an abomination and an offense and an embarrassment in the larger community because of the magnitude of his mismanagement of the stewardship of the glory of God. 
When we go to the Lord's Prayer, how does the Lord's Prayer identify our sin? Father, forgive us what? Our debts, even as we forgive our debtors. That the notion of sin is not just that I've offended my brother by a harsh comment or maybe a critical word. But the notion of that is that I have offended God. And let me paint this picture for you. It's about a life that has been given, that each one of you has been given a life, and that life has been given by God, and that life is not your own. That life is God's, and it was given to you for a purpose. What is that purpose? That purpose is to glorify God. That's what the Westminster Catechism tells us, Isaiah tells us, God created us for his glory. It's not to make me great, it's to make God great. Everything that God has given you is a treasure, including your life, that has been put at your disposal to bring him glory. And the only way, as the Westminster Catechism tells us, that we can give God glory and know how is according to his word. And when we deviate from the will and word of God, even in the smallest amount, as Adam and Eve did in the garden, what we are doing is we are taking God's glory for ourselves and saying, I'm God, and we're stealing his glory And we're incurring a debt. It's a debt that carries a life sentence. It is life for life. So let me illustrate this for you. When I come and give a harsh word to a brother, or I give a harsh and patient word to my wife, and I might have a basis for that, and maybe something wrong was done, but it's not done in a gentle manner or a gracious manner or in a way that's pleasing to the Lord, I could say it was just a mistake. Forgive me for making a mistake. Or I could say that Mark Chin's tongue was given to him for a purpose. And that tongue was given to glorify the Lord. And his word in Ephesians has said that we're to speak the truth in love. And I'm told that if we correct someone, we're supposed to do it with gentleness and graciousness. And that a younger man is to go to an older man as his father with honor and respect. And that I am supposed to let nothing come out of my mouth that is not good for edification or encouragement. And the moment I deviate for that, what am I doing? Stealing God's glory for myself. And I'm saying, who's greatest in the kingdom here? Mark Chin. Because I'm going to do it my way. And so I have a debt that's outstanding to, the God, to God. Because he's given me a mouth and a tongue and a heart for one purpose and one purpose only to bear his image. And I think if we look at sin that way and see it as a debt and see that every action is an account before the Lord of either we're glorifying him because it's a reflection of his word and bearing his image or we're stealing glory for ourselves because it's a departure from his word. I think that you'll all see that we can identify with this servant in this story that we stand before God with a life sentence of a myriad of life sentences back to back to back to back. And the challenge with that sin is that there's no way that I can take back and repair that. When I speak a harsh word to Julie, I can go and try and fix the problem myself, and I can get in there and try and remedy it, and I can go, like I said before, and get up early and do the dishes and cook her breakfast, but nothing's going to go and take back that word that's been said. That word's out there. Never going to change. It's going to be hard for her to forget that. I can't repair 
that piece of pottery that's fallen and that's broken. And in fact, my best attempts to go and glue it all together with crazy glue and give it back to her, all that does is makes it worse and just shows what a pathetic embarrassment I am at trying to reconcile. And any of you who are married men or have served on leadership have walked that path and been there before. And that's the point that Jesus is trying to make is that we can't fix this on our own and the more we try and fix it, the worse it gets. And so we see the ways of the king as we see what God's response is. And we see with this servant that there's only one ticket out for this servant. And we see that that servant goes and he falls down on his face before the king and he begs not for justice because he deserves no justice. Doesn't even try and cut a deal. Begs for mercy. And then he offers this very unreasonable offer that somehow I'll find a way to repay it all. And then we see really the basis of forgiveness. We see the heart of the king. Where does forgiveness come from? It says that as the Lord sees or the king sees this servant bowing before him, begging for mercy, that he has compassion. It's very, his very heart, his very bowels are moved towards him in compassion. And he forgives him his entire debt. The word that's used for that slave's actions is proskuneo, falling flat in his face. It is the same word that is used for worship throughout the New Testament. It is the idea or the notion of a person falling flat in their face and saying, in and of myself, I can do nothing here. I am completely dependent on you and I am submitting entirely and I'm placing the entirety of my life in your hands to do with as you decide or you will. No deals, nothing. And that's what the servant is doing. And as you see what he does, it takes us back to Psalm 51 where David says to God, against you and you alone have I sinned. David murdered a man and he slept with a man's wife. He did plenty to offend and grieve other people. But when he tallied up the accounts, the greatest sin and the greatest grief and the greatest heartbreaking event was towards God himself. And unless we see that as the basis of sin, we will never truly appreciate or step onto the road of forgiveness. And unless we see that the path of forgiveness begins with worshiping God, not trying to fix the problem, and seeing our sin the way God sees it in his book, the Word of God, and to identify it and see what it is. Not what people think, not whether I'm better than the next person, but what does God say about what's been done here? We can't begin to go and receive forgiveness from God. And yet, what's the hope? The basis of forgiveness in a forgiving community is that God is a forgiving God who is moved to compassion for sinners who seek forgiveness from him. And he grants it freely and graciously. And if we look at the forgiveness that God gives, and we see how that contrasts in comparison to the forgiveness that Peter wants, and that what he wants to give, we see that God's forgiveness, first of all, comes from a heart of compassion and love and mercy. We see that God's forgiveness is complete. The moment he forgives, he forgives completely and wipes everything clean. 
And we see that the forgiveness that he gives is without conditions. He doesn't put together a payment plan. He doesn't even go to this man and say, okay, I'm going to forgive you now. But if you end up getting in debt with me again, just a little bit, that's it, it's over. No. This man is free to walk away. And we see that God's forgiveness is creative. It gives this man a completely new life where his relationship is completely restored. Does not mean that God is not aware that this man blew it big. But the life that he gives, he allows this servant to go back and resume the exact same role he had before without conditions. How different is that from the forgiveness that I give? How different is that from the forgiveness that we give? An employee or an employer frustrates us on the job. He does it repeatedly. And how often do we get to that place where we say, okay, I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to let it go this time. But if it happens two or three more times, that's it. Or how often do we put conditions down where we basically say, okay, I'll forgive you if I never see this behavior again. And how often do we see that in marital counseling where there's a grievance between a husband and a wife and the husband has failed miserably, whether it's through pornography or an extramarital relationship, and he comes and he grieves and he walks through that path of forgiveness. And there's no question that there don't need to be parameters for accountability because we're men. And there doesn't mean that there doesn't need to be a framework to see if this man is truly repentance. And we definitely have to protect that man to make sure that he's not putting himself in a situation which is going to make him vulnerable to sin again out of love for him. But there is going to have to be a point if that relationship moves forward where that wife is going to say, because Christ has forgive you, I'm going to allow you to be my husband again. I'm going to allow you to be the leader of this home again. We may need all the elders on board. We need, may need your friends. We may need accountability groups. We're going to need the entire church to support us. But I'm going to allow you to be my husband again. As opposed to the man who's going to be in the doghouse and sleep in the couch and have to prove himself and live up to my expectations rather than God's expectations. And the questions come... If a sinner has satisfied God, if it's good enough for God, will it be good enough for us to forgive a brother or to forgive a sister? We see that God's forgiveness is com compassionate, it's complete, it's without conditions, and it is also creative because there's a totally new relationship that is set up there. That this slave is allowed to resume his role, but his role will never be the same again because that role now exists on the basis of grace and not on merit. His relationship with that king is not based on what a great servant he was, how much money he brought in for the king, what an outstanding role he did as governor. Everybody in the community is going to know that that man stands there for one reason and one reason alone. Because the king forgave that man the entirety of his debt. Jesus is saying, Peter, look at the king and see how different that forgiveness is than the forgiveness that you're talking about here. Sadly, that's not the end of the story. And Jesus goes on and points from the forgiveness of, of the king and the nature of what sin is in the eyes of the king and goes on to the ways of the kingdom. 
How does the kingdom function? And it's a heartbreaking story because as you're all familiar with, we see that there's a but that comes in here. And the but shows that there's a change. That This servant, after he is set free, goes out into the streets as we see in 28 through 35. And he goes into the streets and gets another slave and basically holds accounts with him in the same way the king held accounts with with himself. And he talks to him and he says, you owe me so much and, and we know it's about, we expect around three months salary and even though that's significant, it's a pittance in comparison to what he's received. And the interesting th- thing here is the second slave uses almost the same language as the first slave used to the king. Almost the same language. He pleads with them. And he says, have patience with me and I will repay you. And so we see a parallel situation. And we see this new slave who now has a new lease on life. Now he's using it, what? To himself act like God. And the question's the same. When are you going to pay me back? And the answer's the same. Have patience with me. But the response is 180 degrees different. There is no compassion. There is no complete forgiveness. There is no forgiveness without conditions here. There is only conditions that unless you pay me back in full, you're going to be tossed into the debtor's prison. And there's no new lease on life. Instead, there is the bondage of sin that's going to be held over this person's life for the rest of his life. And that's the nature of sin. And that's also the nature of the lack of forgiveness as we hold another person's sin over their head. And it's grievous, but Jesus doesn't stop there. One of the things that he's pointing out is that this slave is a slave who's been forgiven. Dr. MacArthur aptly points out in this parable that the reference here in the parable is for believers, not unbelievers. That it is very easy for us as believers to forget that we have been forgiven an infinite amount and to go back and revert to the old ways we used to function and the old ways that we used to forgive and to begin making demands on people and relating people and relating to their sin and their forgiveness in exactly the same ways. And I can say for myself, I certainly identify with this sermon. And I'm sure each one of you at one point in your life has said, wow, that's me. And this is here to show that, to demonstrate that and bring that to home, to Peter. But as Jesus goes through the ways of the kingdom, he also demonstrates that there are other slaves who are there. And the other slaves, as they see this, what's their response? What's their response in verse 31? It's two things. It says, number one, that they're grieved. They're hurt by what they see. And the second thing says that they go to the king and they appeal to the king. And there's two important things I want you to note here. That when we fail to forgive one another and there's a lack of forgiveness, a true Christ-like forgiveness in the community, it grieves the body and it brings the body into a state of sorrow and heartbreak and mourning. And not only does it grieve the body, but it brings division. It brings a lack of unity where there are two camps, those who forgive and those who don't forgive. And it serves as a source of bitterness, discontent, and poison 
that will tear down the house and that Satan will come in and exploit among us. So one of the reasons why Jesus is giving us this parable. And so we see that the servants are grieved by it and it does not go without their notice. But it also shows us how those servants who are grieved handle it. Do they go and tell all the other servants? Do they go and tell their wives? Do they go and get together and weigh and debate? No. Says they what? Go to the king. They appeal to the king. And I fall short in this. How often, when we're grieved by the behavior or the action of someone else, do we go first to the king and pray before him and weigh it before him and say, Lord, shepherd my heart. Am I wrong in the way I'm seeing this? This is grievous to me. Would there be reconciliation? Would Christ come in? Would there be healing in their forgiveness and unity among us? And would you provide a way forth? And then are we willing to go to that person and say there's a grief and offense between the two of us? Let's tie this up with a pursuit of winning or reconciling a brother. Or does it descend into hearsay and gossip and slander among us? It's a challenge, but the line is clear. What is God's response in this situation? We see that when the servants are grieved and they go to God, that God himself holds account and brings this servant to him. And God himself passes a judgment. And what is that judgment? So we look in verse 32 and 35. It's a very harsh judgment. First of all, God calls the servant what he is. How does he describe that servant? Refers to him as wicked. Wicked. It's a harsh word. Is it not? If I was to go to you and say you're wicked, don't you think that would be harsh? How long do you think we would be friends? The word is porneria. Okay? Habitually evil. It makes a reference to a character of a person. Not a one-time event. That the nature of that person is bent or directed to deviate from the will of God. And when we see it in the context that here is a servant who has been forgiven an infinite amount, has been given a new lease on life, but comes back and uses the same standards towards another person that existed before he had received infinite grace, God is saying, in spite of grace, you continue to go back and do things the exact same way. And because of that, you are, in my eyes, a wicked servant. You're still my servant, you're still my slave, but you're wicked. But then the second is the real kicker. He hands this man over to the torturers. It's a literal translation, torture. That God is going to allow this person to be in a position where he is going to be punished and tormented and continually reminded. And he is going to be in a prison indefinitely. And it is a picture, an illustration, and a foreshadow of hell. Not that a believer can lose his salvation, but Jesus is bringing home the illustration of the position and place of people who are without grace. And I will tell you that for you and myself, the closest that you and I will ever come to hell as believers who are saved are believers who do not forgive. I'm going to say that again. The closest that you and I are going to come to hell in this world and the next is by being 
believers who have been forgiven an infinite amount and we do not extend the same grace to one another. And we have all seen that. We have all seen how the lack of forgiveness in a marriage, in a home, in a family ends up eroding. And discontent becomes bitterness, and bitterness starts a fire, and anger and a root is there, and days become weeks, and weeks become years. And we see that the biggest toll, physically and spiritually, is we see these people breaking down, heart problems, migraine headaches, dependent use of, of pain-relieving drugs. I've seen it all in the biblical counseling room, where you work your way back from physical dependency, and you find at the heart a hurt or a pain or a sorrow, which may be legitimate, Maybe this woman was abused by her father. Maybe there was incest. Maybe a wrong was legitimately done. No question. Maybe they were the victim of evil. But 15 or 20 years down the road, they have tried to handle it on their own and hung on to that hurt. And their entire lives have imploded. And brothers and sisters, if that happens for a life, that will happen for a church. No different. And the only remedy and the only way out is for us to fall before the king and to say, have mercy on us, whether it's for the sin we've received or the sin that we've given, and to say to the Lord, please take this debt from us. And that ultimately is what Christ is pointing to, is the way out is that Christ has borne that cross and he's died for our sins and his sacrifice for our sins and his blood is worth the infinite amount for the one who's abused you and that sin that you've received and for the sin that you've done, I am able to take that guilt, I am able to bear that sin, and I am able to restore that relationship. And one of the most amazing things to see is to see believers walk down that path. One of the shepherds who I had the privilege of working with, one of the most joyful and encouraging men in my life, at Joint Heirs in Grace Community Church is a man named Rob Ray. He's related to the Smiths, who you know well. He's part of that extended family. I served with him now probably for 8 to 12 years. Bright affect, when people are in sorrow, comes to them and embraces them. And it wasn't until I served with him and, were, and, and spent time with him probably for 8 or 9 years after he was supporting a woman who had just lost her husband. And he shepherded me on how to handle that. And he said, Mark, because I'm a man of words, sometimes you can't say anything. You just need to put your arms around the person and help them when they're grieving. He said, when my brother died, that's what worked for me. And then I was to find out that his brother, as you may well know, was shot when he was a store clerk at a 7-Eleven. Random, someone came in, robbery went wrong, and his brother was shot. And ultimately, that family went and visited that man in prison and ministered to that man and ministered the gospel and ministered to Christ to him. And the Rob Ray I know is not someone who's been permanently scarred from a horrific thing that most families never overcome, but perhaps one of the greatest men of giving compassion that I've known at Joint Heirs Community. Brothers and sisters, there's a crossroads for the two of us. And forgiveness is not easy. Forgiveness is hard. Forgiveness is hard. Why do we not go down that path? It doesn't feel comfortable. It's strange and it's different. And the only way that we can get there, as painful as it is, 
is to go to the cross and be with the king and understand from his book what our own sins are and to begin to see our own sins in the light of his word and the light of his person and understand the magnitude of our personal offenses to the Lord and begin to see how much we've grieved a loving and gracious God and then to believe in the cross and to look and stare in the face of the one who said, Father, forgive them because they know not what they do. And when that phrase was said, that phrase was recorded for you and I because we were forgiven before we even knew to go to Christ and say, Lord Jesus, come into my heart, forgive my sin, cleanse me for lying in the fifth grade and any of those other things. He forgave us before we even showed up. Past, present, future. Your worst sin, he nailed to the cross, and he paid for it fully. And the reason that you and I stand here in this community here today, instead of somewhere else, holding accounts with one another, is only from the blood of Christ, and is only because of all the sins that he's forgiven. And if you were to go back and look at every idle word that's been spoken, and say that that has both grieved God and that has offended people in a way that you can't go back and you can't repair. But Christ has made the difference. And Christ has come and made you a new creation. And Christ has said, I empower you to go to that person and said, you know what? I was wrong. I'd like your forgiveness. And I want to be reconciled with you. And I'm struggling with this, but I know that Christ will find some way between the two of us to bring unity into this situation, both at the cross and the obedience to his word. Jesus brings this parable to a close in verse 35. And the point of his parable is this. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive your brother from your heart. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive your brother from your heart. I want to close with these few statements. John MacArthur has said, and I believe he rightly says it, we are most like God when we forgive. We are most like God when we forgive. The corollary to that is what? We are most unlike God when we don't forgive. And when we don't forgive, what we're saying to God is, I don't need your grace. I don't need your glory. I'm in charge here. That's what we're doing and that's what we're saying in that scenario. And we're choosing to go it alone. And when we choose to go it alone, God will settle accounts with us and we will place us in a place of spiritual and physical and emotional torment that will break us down and destroy us as people, in marriages, and as a church. And so the question that I have for you moving forward is this. Individually, communion is coming up in two to three weeks. Is a time that we celebrate the atonement and the forgiveness of Christ and what he's done on our behalf and the unity that we have with one another. If you have offended someone, or if there's an offense that is on your heart that is a burden, I believe that this example that we've seen today calls us to go first to the Lord 
and bring it to him and go to Christ as Peter did and say, Lord, shepherd my heart and how I'm supposed to deal with this and show me through the light of your word. And all you need to do is type in forgiveness in the scripture in some, any accordance you have and it'll all come up and it's plain, plain as day of how we're supposed to deal with that. But to allow first, as Peter did, for the Lord and the King to shepherd us. Second, we have a choice. Are we going to pursue our brothers? It says that if we have an offense against a brother and that's on the altar, that we're going to go quickly and resolve it before we make our donation or our sacrifice and leave our sacrifice in the altar and resolve it. And will we allow Christ to bring in a forgiveness that is complete, compassionate, and without conditions? Will we have compassion for the sinner? And to say at the end of the day, yes, I'm hurt, yes, I'm grieving, but you know, as God's looked on me and said, Mark Chin is just a frail man who falls short, and he is made of but dust. And on his best day, if there's anything good in him, it's a grace from God and not himself. And if he falls short, that's him. Are we going to look at the other person and say, look, at the end of the day, this person's a sinner. He's been saved by grace. And what he needs most is the grace of God. And you know what? Because I'm Christ's child, I, of all people in this room, am in a position because the Spirit of God is in me to give that grace. I long to give that grace. I desire to give that grace. I hope for that person to see the joy of his salvation renewed and for unity to be there so that two of us as brothers can come together and rejoice and say, I'm an idiot and I'm a jerk, but you know what? Christ is bigger and his cross is bigger. And then the question for you moving forward as you consider your leaders is not... How well do their personalities fit together? How well do they talk together? Do their wives hang out together? Do they play golf together? Is one tall and is one short? Is one on this side sits over here and is another on this side? Are they men who live in the forgiveness of Christ? And are they men who give the forgiveness of Christ? Because you can take the best of friends and the best of people who see all their theology in the same way and you put them in the same room and sooner or later I can tell you what they're going to need forgiveness and they're going to need a reconciliation that comes from where not from you or I but from the spirit of God and the blood of Christ why is that because we're sinners and until Christ comes again we're not going to be like him the question for you as a church together is are you going to be a community that is going to be a forgiving community that is going to be known for being rich in the grace of God or are you going to be a tormented community and a tortured community a group of people where it's about programs and relationships and people gathering together and met needs but sin and forgiveness are not seen from the view of the character of God but they're seen on a horizontal level between person to person. That's a question that each one of us needs to answer. My hope and my prayer and my belief for each of you as I've heard you and spoken with you is that one day we will be a community that people can say, yes, there were hard times. Yes, there were divisions. 
Yes, there was brokenness, but you know what? All that that did was it exemplified how great the blood of Christ and how great his grace was. John MacArthur has said it's not how a man falls, but how he gets up. Because each one of us are sinners. And the question is, is it the grace of God that makes us stand? Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, I come to you as a sinner, as a man who falls short, who steals your glory on a day-to-day basis. Forgive me, Lord, for offending you and grieving in you with words spoken and unspoken, with the ineptness of my ways, Lord. And I pray that you'd forgive me for those who I have offended, Lord, for the hearts that are broken knowingly and unknowingly, Lord. And I come before you with this community and I just thank you for the cross that, humanly speaking, where forgiveness is impossible, you have provided a way. And I look to you and ask you, Lord, would you come in and do what needs to be done to make this a community that is just overflowing with your grace. Lord, you and you alone have we offended. Lord, would you blot our sins out? Would you make us whiter than snow? Would you return to us the joy of your salvation? Lord, and we will praise you and rejoice in you. And we will come to you not with sacrifices, but with contrite and broken hearts and spirits. And one day, Lord, we will show transgressors your ways. And we will exalt your name and your glory in the assembly, not because of who we are and what we've done, but because of who you are and what you've done, because your forgiveness is complete, your forgiveness is compassionate, your forgiveness is without conditions, and it's your forgiveness that gives us as individuals and as a church a new lease on life. In your name we pray, amen.